0: If you love Jesus, say amen. amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me one more time, please, if you would. We're in the series called The Principle of the Path. Today is number four in the messages. Uh, it's not too late to get involved in one of our life groups. I'll give you a copy of this great book by Andy Stanley. Uh, our text is found in the Old Testament a prophetic book called Micah. Micah chapter 4, verse 2. Find one of the screens where it's comfortable for you to see it. And let's read out loud together. Here we go. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His path. Say those last two phrases with me. Teach us His ways and walk in His path. Here we go. Let's finish it now. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. Okay. uh, It wasn't... I was looking back there and it was head out of Zion shall go forth. let's try it again here we go for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem Jeremiah 17 9 is our text today now we've been using this one we just read for our series because it's all about God teaching us his ways and us learning to walk with the Lord to follow him in his footsteps to walk in the path with the Lord the Bible says the path of the just is as the shining light that shines more and more to the perfect day so in other words, walking with Jesus, things ought to gradually more and more get clearer. You ought to have a, a greater understanding, be filled with more joy. If we're on the path with the Lord, that should be characteristic of our lives. doesn't mean you won't have a challenge occasionally, but if you're walking with Him, He's going to walk with you, and the blessings will come in being in His presence. Okay? Um, the Bible says in, in another place in Proverbs, the way of the transgressor is hard. So if the way you're on is hard right now, that's probably an indicator of maybe there is a problem somewhere. Uh, Our our text today for this message this morning is found in Jeremiah chapter 17. Let's read this one together. Here we go. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to to the fruit of his deeds. Let's pray together. Spirit of the living God, thank you for your presence in this place today. Even as we sing in our worship, take my life, O Lord, take my moments every day, the breath that we breathe. Let it only be, Lord, for you, O God. Thank you that you've filled our hearts with your life, that we were dead in sin and trespasses, but now we've been made alive in Christ. By grace we have been saved. God, we thank you that we were blind, but now we see. We were dead, but now we're alive. Thank you, Lord, for the change, the transformation that has come because of the finished work of Christ, because of the gospel. Thank you for that amazing good news that that you are the God King right now, Lord over everything of the whole universe. God, I just acknowledge that I'm utterly dependent upon you. I cannot do anything apart from you. Move in this service, Holy Spirit, and only the way that you can. You're the only teacher. Open hearts, illuminate, shine a light, O oh God, in the, the dark corridors of our individual hearts. And Lord, we ask you, Father, to make change, that you bring life into darkness. You bring light into darkness and life into death, and you change it and transform it and swallow it up in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said. Amen, Amen. you may be seated together in the presence of the Lord. We're doing this series on the principle of the path. Just to review about two minutes very quickly, direction, not intention, determines destination. Uh, Once in a while, maybe once a year or so, I'll drive over to Village Creek State Park and put on some hiking boots and walk the trails and take pictures of some wildlife, flora and fauna that I might see. Uh, And interestingly enough, no matter where I intend to be, the path that I'm on is going to take me where that path takes me. Uh, we, we've, we've given, multiplied the example. It's just so obvious that it's just silly that you can't intend to go to Nashville but get on the road on I-55 going north and get to Nashville. Oh, you might in you know, several days of wandering around do kind of a wilderness trek the way the children of Israel did turning an 11-day journey into 40 years because they got caught in circular patterns of living Bad decisions that were made, judgment of God came, judgment is always there for the purpose, not, not specifically to punish, but to set right, okay? And if you are His child, then there's going to be some discipline. There'll be a little bit of a sting in that, but God is not some monster. He's not a pagan Zeus. He's a loving father, and his, that's, that's characteristic of His name and His nature of all that He is, uh, and at the same time, He is a God who is thrice holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And so He is wanting to make us in His image, the image of Christ being perfected in your life and mine, which really won't consummate until we finally see Jesus face to face. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, uh, now are we the sons of God, but it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So even though I'm being changed from glory to glory, Romans 1, from faith to faith, John 1, 12, from grace to grace, Psalm 84, from strength to strength, every one of them in Zion appear before God. There are progressions. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, we go from glory to glory, being changed by the Spirit of the Lord. So God is doing a work in me. He began a good work, and the one who began that good work is going to finish it. That's my life verse is Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing that He which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. A more modern translation says until the day of His revealing. And so we're, we're longing to see Him return physically, bodily, and reign as the King that He already is right now. Somebody say amen. And until that time when I see Him, He is changing me. The Bible says in the book of Deuteronomy, little by little they went in and possessed the land. And so little by little, Jesus, the heavenly Joshua, has invaded this land. It has some giants in it. It has some wall cities in it. And Jesus, the heavenly Joshua, is taking all this territory for His, Himself, and He's telling us if we'll follow Him, we'll pass away that we've never gone before. Remember to review quickly, if you look around and you've got spiritual deja vu and you feel like that your life is just going in circles then that's a pretty good indicator that you hadn't learned a lesson that you need to learn. Because God is all about linear progression, starting you out and taking you in a direction for a purpose. Everybody say on purpose. Now, as we jump into this this morning, we have to really ask some questions. We talked about the great disconnect the second week. We talked about choices have consequences last week. And we want to give some further explanation as we go deeper into this series and into the book I think this is chapter 5 in the book for those of you that are involved in our life groups. And I think that it is actually what he called it, the heart of the matter. So I borrowed that and used that as my message title today because we want to get down to the core. We want to get down to the root. We speak theologically in terms of what we call total depravity and that every one of us down to the very root of our being, we are touched through and through with this issue of sin. Um, and I, I've been wrestling this thing down for uh, the last couple of weeks on how I was going to try and present this because I really don't want it to turn into a psychology lesson. I don't want this to be uh, a remembrance of uh, your sophomore class, uh, Psych 101, okay? Um, I want to bring some biblical understanding of the issues that we face as believers in that when we get saved, really what happens? What happens? Uh, and do we really understand what the word saved means? So many times saved has been reduced. It's been boiled down to just meaning you're forgiven and you're going to heaven. But the Greek word soteria from the root Greek word sozo literally means complete deliverance. And in most circles you don't hear those kinds of terms, that definition being ascribed to salvation. We just normally think of salvation from hellfire or from the wrath of God or from the penalty of our sin. And certainly forgiveness is one of the multiples of benefits of salvation. But that is not salvation. Forgiveness is not salvation. Somebody say amen. amen. Forgiveness is one benefit of salvation. Salvation literally means that you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and you have been set down into right now the kingdom of God's dear Son. That's what Colossians 1.14 says. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and He has translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. I am accepted in the Beloved. I am part of now the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not something that I inherit when I die. As a matter of fact, I become part of the kingdom when I'm born again. Now, southern gospel music, as wonderful as we probably all love it to some differing various degrees on the spectrum in the room, has warped our understanding of heaven and of the kingdom and all of these kinds of things. And it's put it off to the future. It's not for us. It's for the Jew only. And it's only in Jerusalem. And it's not until after some seven-year tribulation and a rapture event and all of these different kinds of things that bring about nothing but confusion in the body of Christ... And the reality of it is, is the kingdom is not something way off in the future. The kingdom of God is, is. Every one of the parables, Jesus said the kingdom of God is. It is a present tense reality. Everybody say, the kingdom of God is right now. Now, it is here already, but it's not here in its fullness. You are in the kingdom right now. The kingdom of God is in you, Luke 17 says. So when we start to wrestle this down, we have to ask the questions of what has happened in my life When I was saved, what what has been transformed? What has become new? Is there any old that is lingering that I have to deal with? Okay. Most situations in gospel-centered churches never even speak to these issues. And I don't just mean on Sunday mornings. I mean Sunday night and then Sunday school classes and all of that together. Because to be quite honest with you, there is very little real understanding on what we call the finished work of Christ. And that what he did, he completely declared it done. That is not just the penalty for your sins, but that is paying for your complete and total deliverance salvation, okay? Because in so many places, it is stopped at the little reductionist view of the gospel in that it's... Forgiveness of sins and a home in heaven. And Jesus didn't come and die for you just so you could be forgiven. He came and died for you so you could be delivered and get set free from the sin that is, that is hanging over your life. Come on, somebody. Forgiveness releases us from the penalty of sin. Deliverance sets us free from the power of sin, from the bondage of sin. Okay. Now, let me qualify this because some of you are already thinking, man, is he preaching perfectionism? And it's hilarious to me how people will always throw that up, and I'm going, seriously? It's like that's the first thing out of the chute. It's like people want to make sure that they can plan on sinning. <laughs> Think about that one. Let me just say, if you really learn to start walking with Jesus, it'll be at least a couple months before you have to wrestle down any kind of perfectionism. Now, let's get real. It'll be until we see Him face to face. That's the truth. There are still issues that He is working on in me. He has begun a good work, but my focus is no longer on what I used to be. My focus is on who I am now and what I'm becoming in Christ. The body of Christ is so defeated in so many places because Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, the preaching is focused. It's total depravity, run up the flagpole, and it's a room full of people that are largely already saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, walking with Jesus Christ to some degree or another on that spectrum of spiritual maturity. And you would think Linda Ronstadt was the choir director because everything that is preached and sung about is how awful and low down and nothing but a worm and you're just a no no good low down sinner. And you're no good, you're no good, you're no good, baby. You're no good, I'm going to sing it again. Come back next Sunday and I'll say the same thing and we'll sing it again. It's quiet in here. How many of you were raised on that kind of nonsense? Let's tell the truth. Sin consciousness preaching will not get you set free righteousness consciousness. Most churches this morning, the whole focus is going to be on sin. Sin, sin, sin. Sin is the central aspect of it. It is the gospel of sin management. And if Christ dwells in your hearts by faith, Ephesians 3.17, in those places, if all they're still talking about is the depravity of man, they're still preaching a man-centered gospel. You will never hear me get up here and preach more about your sin than I do Jesus' righteousness. Come on. The focus is Jesus' righteousness. It's, how, it's not how awful you are, it's how good he is. And guess what? Because he lives on the inside of you, now that's changing who you are. Come on, somebody. Help me, Holy Spirit. Too many times in too many places, Jeremiah seventeen nine becomes the verse that trumps all the other verses in the Bible about the heart. And I understand, my, my wonderfully beloved conservative Bible teachers are trying to come up against the pop psychology that comes across a lot of very um, prosperity gospel-driven pastors, pulpits with big cheesy smiles. And, you know, nothing wrong with having a dream, but when that becomes the whole focus and it's not about Jesus being the center, then you can know you're probably what the gospel is in the Word. Somebody say amen. Now, I I want you to recognize these guys will regularly say because we hear it, we hear it from Dr. Phil, we hear it from Dr. Oz, we hear it from Oprah, we hear it from, you know, famous TV preachers that, you know, want to give you your best life now and all that kind of stuff, and I'm not going to name any names, even though I probably cued 90% of the people to who I'm talking about right there with the name of the book, and I'm not into bashing anybody, because he will stand before God in terms of what he's preached, just like I will, and give an account I think that so many times, though, we end up knee-jerking and reacting. And a number of these conservative guys have said, all of this advice that you always get on trusting your heart, well, if all else fails you don't know what to do, just trust your heart. And they said, that's the worst thing that you can ever do. Bad advice. You can't trust your heart. And I want to go back this morning and I want to ask the question. Though I agree with that advice, I just don't think that it's entirely the full truth. Because I'm going to show you today that not only can you not trust your heart, you can't trust your mind either. Because your mind can think up a lot of things to justify what your heart is feeling you ought to be doing, and you can talk yourself into anything. And the advice always comes from my reformed conservative brothers, of which I'm a part of that camp, and they will say, You can't you can't ever trust your heart. And I don't think that's the the truth. I want you to look with me to Jeremiah chapter 17, and I'm going to go back and I'm going to put this in context. The, the, the student in Bible school learned it this way. A text without a context is a pretext. And What we do so many times is we proof text. We pull one verse out of the Scripture in order to be able to justify a particular belief, when you can't do that, you have to pull all the verses that speak to that topic out of the scripture and use all of them together in order to be able to arrive at what the biblical answer is. And far too often, Jeremiah 17, 9 trumps all the other verses about the heart in the Bible. And next week, I'll be preaching on preventing congestive heart failure. So we're going to be talking about what the Bible says that you can do to make sure that your heart is in right alignment with the word of the Lord. Okay. But let's get the context here. Thus says the Lord, verse 5 in Jeremiah, and this is not on your screen, so you have to listen. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Where is the heart? Turning away from the Lord, okay? He is like a shrub in the desert. He shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Now he's about to turn and shift the whole focus from the cursed man who trusts in man and his arm, his flesh as his arm of strength. He turns now in verse 7. He says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its shoots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. That is almost word for word what I prayed over the new members this morning out of Psalm 1. Jeremiah is prophesying and he's giving us this amazing contrast between the cursed man who puts his trust in the arm of flesh, man's ingenuity and his inventiveness, his ability to manipulate himself out of the circumstances, his ability to create and finance the circumstances, He says it's a different kind of thing over here from that guy whose heart turns away from the Lord and then this one who makes the Lord his trust, whose trust is the Lord himself. Now, following this comparison, he shows us this this verse that has been pulled out of context far too often and it says the heart is deceitful above all things. Go ahead and pull that back up for me, put it on the screen if you would. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. Look at it with me. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, the answer comes in the next. The Lord is the one who understands it. Here it goes. I, the Lord, search the heart and what? Test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, four principles. I want to grab it quickly. Number one, everybody has been born into the world with the heart disease of sin. Do you agree with that? Everybody in the room, nobody can say I didn't qualify for that, I was standing behind the door, I was born without sin. You don't have to teach your children how to sin, they know when they arrive. It's inborn. You don't think they do, you just can't imagine that little precious doing anything that would be against uh, honesty and integrity and the law of God, you just wait until a sibling comes along and then all of a sudden it's great. You know, when you have one kid, that's one thing. But in, when you have two, it's a whole different situation, especially if they're a little bit close to the same age. And one takes the toy of the other one and the other one rises up in divine retribution and smacks the you-know-what out of the other one. And you come in and you're standing there and you see the little older one has a red handprint and the younger one has a red face. And he says, What did you do? And the older one says, I don't know. (laughs) There is this ability in us as little bitty children to cover our backsides and lie on the spot. You don't, and you back up and you go, Who taught you how to do that, baby? And you want to go, I've never stood up here and lied in front of this child. I, why, why in the world? How did this happen? What, what, is, what is going on? God, what is happening? You don't have to teach your children how to lie. You have to teach them not to. You don't have to teach them how to sin. You have to teach them not to, to obey the word of the Lord. And guess what? It's, it's a fruitless circumstance. You can grow them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, trusting in God that when they're old they will not depart from it. Trust in the Lord that, that as you train them up in the way that they shall go. And I believe every parent is standing on that principle. Uh, but, but every one of us is born in sin. And, I, and, I, and I'm not going to multiply. There are two scriptures that are listed there, both Romans 5, 19, and also 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and 21, 21 and 22, I think. I gave you just for you to be able to check out. And both of those verses talk about the two men that are in the earth. Technically, there are only two men on the planet, Adam and Christ. The first Adam and the last Adam who came to bring a lasting end to the first Adam. Adam is the man of sin. Christ is the man of righteousness. You either identify with one or the other. 1 Corinthians 15 says, and Adam all die... In Christ shall all be made alive. By one man's sin, disobedience, by one man's disobedience, sin reigned in all men. Made the many sinners is what the scripture says. <clears throat> and then it says in Romans five nineteen, it says, By one man's obedience, righteousness, the many have been made righteous. You can't dwell in both camps. You are not of Adam and of Christ. You are born naturally. Adam is your father. When you are born again, you are born into a whole new family, into a whole new nature, into a whole new name and identity. Are any of you tracking with me this morning? So I want you to realize that when I'm preaching this, I'm preaching this to believers. But there will be an opportunity at the close... That if you sense the convicting power and presence of the Holy Spirit, that what we're preaching, the goodness of God revealed in the new creation in your life and the finished work of Christ, it can become yours. The Holy Spirit is walking these aisles in this place this morning. Number one, we've already said it, everybody is born with the heart disease of sin. You know, I I included a quote there by a, a world famous philosopher right underneath that verse of scripture there. Uh, in case you didn't know it, he regularly appears on Duck Dynasty. His name is Cy Robertson. You can read it out loud with me if you would, please. It ain't gun control we need, it's sin control. Now, I'm not opening that can of worms to, to talk about legislation on guns. That's not where I'm coming from. His point is, very simply and very astutely stated, articulated, was this. You can make all the laws you want to and all these different kinds of behaviors, but until you deal with the root cause, which is sin, you, there's, you can't control that. The, the, the real issue is not the gun in the man's hand. The issue is the heart in the man that has the gun in his hand. And it's what you're using it for, the intentions by which you load up and cock that trigger back or that whatever. You get my drift. Number 2, the new birth be I'm sorry. Uh, yes, number 2, the new birth brings you a heart transplant. The new birth brings you a heart transplant. This is the reason that I think that Jeremiah 17:9 should not trump all the other heart scriptures in the Bible. Listen to this. Jeremiah 17:9, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit, capital S, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Everybody say, new heart, new New spirit. spirit. Okay, now, I I just want to say something to you. There's a little line there, two lines, not a paragraph full, but it it says this. Look at it with me. You don't have to read it out loud. Just look along with me. New birth brings new life that includes a new nature... A new name written down in glory, yes, it's mine, yes, it's mine. We all sang that years ago. A new name is a new identity and a new standing, which is righteousness. I'm covered with the righteousness of Christ, so I have a whole new standing before the Father. All of that is part of what we call the new creation in Christ. And unfortunately, not nearly enough of this is preached in far too many churches. It is only a sin consciousness that is regularly hammered on and it's no wonder people in the body of Christ live in constant defeat because they're told, hey, expect it, you're going to sin a little bit every day. And I'm going to tell you, you have a new nature on the inside of you and you don't have to believe that lie. You have a choice. You once were blind, but now you see. You have the ability and a heart right now that's new on the inside of you and a mind that needs to be renewed. We're going to talk about that in the next point where you have the ability to, dis- to distinguish between light and dark and between goodness and evil and between life and death. Come on, you didn't used to because you were dead in sins. But now you're alive in Christ. And so if you really believe amazing grace and that it is amazing, I once was blind but now I see. You have the ability to see. As a matter of fact... Jesus told Nicodemus who was a ruler in the synagogue who came to him by night because he didn't want his Pharisee brothers to find out that he was interested in this new teacher who'd come on the scene preaching the gospel of God he asked Jesus some questions and he says Nicodemus except you're born again you cannot see the kingdom of God except you be born of the water and the spirit you cannot enter the kingdom of God so Even seeing what we're talking about this morning is completely contingent upon whether or not you have been only born under Adam or whether you have been reborn in Christ. Everybody, you need to be born again. Because that's where the new creation comes and transformation takes place. Now... The the, the whole passage even of John 3.16, that's the context. For some reason, John 3.16 has been boiled down only to mean forgiveness. And forgiveness, the word, is never even in the passage. It's not the subject of it. John 3 is all about a whole new kind of life. Being born again, seeing the kingdom, walking with God, entering into the kingdom of God. It's a new life based on a new birth. Some of you are looking at me like a cow at a new gate this morning because you've never heard anybody preach like this. Forgiveness is a benefit of salvation, but it's not salvation. Salvation is completely delivered, set free free from you don't have to stay in the cycle of of every time you turn around and you sin that same sin again whatever your flavor is and what you're stuck in oh if if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness Jesus please forgive me I've done it again and you know what if you're doing that very often you need to get the revelation that the gospel is not just Jesus dying to forgive you but he died to deliver you somebody put your hands together Now, if you never hear that preached, faith never arises in your heart to take hold of that promise. Guess what? Most churches, it's just a boiled down, little bitty reductionist view of the gospel. And thank God that much is there because when it's preached, faith arises and people get saved and they know their home in heaven is secure. But oh my goodness, how very little of what this whole new life is about is even included in that package. Somebody says, "Well, it really doesn't matter, pastor. You know, if we if we get him saved, we can teach him about being Lord later." No, because people don't get it that way. You got to know from the outset he's Lord of your life. He's the boss, he's the king. He's not just the priest who does something for you, but he's the king who demands something of you. Come on, don't shout me down now this morning. I'm preaching real good here. If there isn't something fundamentally different about the new heart, then what's the point? If you're telling me the new heart that I have, I still can't trust it any more than I could the old one that I had, then what's the point? Think about that. that, that I kind of bounced that one around and it, threw it out there and it just sort of came <laughs> rolling back up here. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go up for the shoot and I'm going to th- <laughs> do it again. If there isn't something fundamentally different about the new heart, then what's the point? Besides, Ephesians 3.17 says Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. I don't think you can keep living the same way you used to live before you met Jesus as Savior and Lord and keep claiming He's Lord of your life. Something has to progressively begin to change. That doesn't mean you get up from the altar and everything is perfect. I'll be the first one to testify. He's still working on me. But he's working on me. And that means some conviction of the Holy Spirit is moving and working in my heart and my life. Somebody, listen, none of us can use the excuse of original sin because we were all born that way. We're all born in sin. And if you're using your first birth as the excuse behind your behavior, whether it's an alternative lifestyle, whether it's a chemical addiction whether it's something that you just can't manage or you can't bring under control and you just say, well, I can't help it, I was just born this way. Well, you know what? So was everybody else on the planet. We were all born in sin. We were all born with some kind of proclivity toward some kind of wrong. And the issue that Jesus says is you can't keep living like that. You must be born again. Don't, don't, don't tell me I was just born this way. I'll just say, well, you know what? You need to be born again. Look at your neighbor and say, have you been born again? All right. Number three, a regenerated believer's issue isn't a bad heart, it's an unrenewed mind. A regenerated believer's issue isn't a bad heart, you already have a new one, a new spirit on the inside of you. A regenerated, that means you've been made alive, you have new life in you. You once were dead, but now you're alive to Christ. A regenerated believer's issue isn't a bad heart, it's an unrenewed mind. Romans 12, 2 is very clear. Don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Jesus said in John 8 32, If you continue in my word, you will be my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Come on, how many many of you want to really be free? Come on, somebody. Let's give God some praise this morning. You want to be free? Stay in the word, abide in the word. Let the Word become part of you. Memorize Scripture. Speak it back out of your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. What did the psalmist David say? I have set you, Lord, continually before me. Sometimes I'll go through the day just meditating a line, maybe out of Psalm 23. You lead me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I just mutter it. Thank you, Lord, that you lead me in paths of righteousness. Lord, you're made into me wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The decisions that I make, God, let them be godly. Let them bless. Let your favor be upon this church. And that's how I just, I mutter it. I, I, I'm walking around and I'm meditating. I'm, I'm not on my face and on my knees praying continually, but I'm walking around in a posture of prayer in, in and in praying in the Spirit on a regular basis. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Continue in the Word, abide in the Word, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now, listen to what the, the writer of Romans 8 says. The Apostle Paul says... Now this is the group to which he said there's no condemnation in Christ. Okay, to those which are in Christ Jesus. He said in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. This translates the King James It says it this way. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So that's a choice that I make. I'm a believer. I have a new heart. But I have a mind that I have to reign in, that I have to deal with in the thoughts that I allow it to have. And yes, you have control over your thoughts. Some of you are going, you just don't know what I'm wrestling with, Pastor. Let me tell you, what is more powerful than a thought is a spoken word. The words you speak out of your mouth are more powerful than the thoughts that you're wrestling with. That's why you need to learn to commit some scripture to memory and then speak the word of the Lord and take it up as a, as a sword where you can cut the head of the enemy off. Let me give you a little illustration. I didn't do this in the 9 o'clock service, but I'm just reminded by the Holy Spirit right now. I want everybody in the room... I want you to start at 10. When I say go, you're going to count down from 10 down to 1, okay? Here we go. No, no, not out loud. Just think it. Here we are. Here we go. Start again. Here we go. Go. Now say the ABCs out loud. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Come on. H, I, J, K, L, a pimento cheese. Stop. What happened to the count? The thought was arrested by the power of the spoken word. Words are more powerful than thoughts because when you speak, you just have overtaken the realm of your thought. When you're tempted, you go, Lord, your word have I hidden in my heart so that I might not sin against you. God, my flesh is screaming at me. I want to do that. In the name of Jesus, right now, the gospel is not about me being forgiven and going to heaven. The gospel is about Jesus deliver me in the middle of this temptation. Are you hearing me? That's the gospel that we don't hear preached. It's the finished work of Christ reapplied to my life in the middle of the struggle that I'm facing right now. Hear that. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Now, hear this, and I've got one more point. And thank you for coming. You're just going to help me set this up right here. What did we say previously? New birth brings new life. That includes a new nature, a new name, a new standing. All that's part of the new creation. The one thing that's not mentioned there is it doesn't say anything about getting a new mind. What you have to do is you have the challenge and the charge to renew your mind. To renew your thinking. Because so many times you're living out of the memory of the old man who is dead. Come on somebody. If, if the old man's already been buried and you're still 20 years later, his clothes are hanging in the closet and you're still living out of the memory of the old man... Are you hearing me this morning? You need to renew your mind because Adam is dead. Your husband is not Adam anymore. Your husband is now Jesus Christ and he's not a wife beater. He's not a verbal abuser. That's that whole answer to Paul in Romans 7 where he talks about once the spouse has died, you're no longer bound by marriage laws anymore because they're dead. And he's not just all of a sudden giving a marriage seminar in the middle of a passage on sin he talks about how sometimes I, I want to do the things that I don't want to do and I ended up not doing what I should do. And that whole thing, that struggle back and forth. It's because of living out of the memory of the old man. But Adam's dead. Christ is alive. Amen. And so what I have to do, he said, you reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. And you renew your thinking and who you are now as a new creation in Christ Jesus I've got a new birth. I have a new life coursing through my veins. I have a new identity, a new name written down in glory. I have a new nature. I have new righteousness that is not mine, but it's Christ that has been imputed to me. He became my sin so I could take on His righteousness on my life. And far too often, it's just week after week, the emphasis on how awful the sin is and not how great the righteousness is. And I'm looking at a room full of people that He died so that you could enjoy the benefits of that. Are you hearing me this morning? Last point. and it's just the scripture, that's all I need to say. The word goes too deep for deception. I, I don't believe that a person who's truly been blood-bought, water-baptized, spirit-filled can continue to do something and lie yourself into self-deception. Not possible. Well, how do these preachers that are doing so well fall? They may put up a good front. They may justify it in their own heart, but when you sit down to them after the plane has crashed and you open the black box and you listen to the recording of what got them from that point to where they are now, they'll go, you know what, I I lied to myself, but down in the depth and the heart of hearts inside of me, I knew that it wasn't right what I was doing. Word is too deep for deception. When I say word, I don't mean black ink on white paper. I'm not talking about a copy of the Holy Bible. I'm talking about the word who is a person and his name is what? Jesus. Jesus is the word. Now, in light of that, let's see if that's not what the writer of Hebrews was saying. Listen, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Real, real quick aside here, I, I am what's called a trichotomist. I believe that there are three parts in man. Other wonderful Bible teachers believe there are two, and they are what are called a dichotomist. It's really a non-essential, it really has become a sort of an inner debate in the household of faith. I, I, I believe that this this passage right here is what decided it for me. Because if the word of God is able to distinguish between two soul and spirit, then I subscribe to this idea of what 1 Thessalonians five twenty three says: "The God of peace preserve you wholly, by holy, your whole person, spirit, soul, and body." Everybody say spirit, soul, and body. And most of the times people are so body conscious they quote it backwards. They say body, soul, and spirit. And that's because we are so used to identifying and seeing ourselves as this. Instead of realizing the person who I am is what's on the inside. Say this with me. Man is a spirit. He has a soul. He lives in a body. We're stamped with the threeness of God. God is a spirit, John 4, 24. God has a soul, mind, will, and emotions. God lives in a body, and I'm looking at the body of God right here this morning. It's a many-membered man. Are you hearing me? So we're stamped with that threeness. I, I think this makes sense so that the issue of trusting my heart and not trusting my heart, I'm really agreeing with those guys that say you can't. But I also just want to add: neither can you trust your mind, not till you get it renewed. And if you're daily renewing it, it basically means you're not trusting yourself, but you're going to the Word and putting your trust in it. Not your own whim, not your own feeling, not your own desire, not your dream, not your scheme, none of that stuff, but to the person of the Word and His name is Jesus. Are you hearing me this morning? This is why I believe that we need to understand salvation is progressive. My spirit has been saved. If I die right now, I'm in His presence. But my soul, while I'm alive, is being renewed. It's being transformed. What I think, my mind, my will, my emotions. My mind is what I think. My will is what I want. My emotions are what I feel. And Jesus said, if if a man can lay down his suke, his soul, if he lose his soul for my sake, then he will find zoe, the life of God that is eternal. If I can lay down my suke, my soul life, my mind, what I think, my will, what I want, my emotions, what I feel, if I can go to the cross and say, Father, take it, take it away. I'm going to lay down. I'm going to lose my soul, my suke, for your sake. What I think is not important. What I want is not important. What I feel is not important. And when I do that, it's amazing how He will give me the mind of Christ. What He thinks Plans and dreams and desires that I can't even begin to imagine that exceed greater than, than you can even begin to think. Now unto Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above anything you can ask or imagine. Because it's the plan of God. It's the mind of God. It's the will of God. It's the perfect will of God. Are you, are you connecting anything of what I'm saying this morning? When I can lay that down, then everything that He has becomes mine. It's poured out in my life in the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is the issue that I battle. The middle ground is my soul. My spirit is new. My body is going to be new when I see him. My spirit has been saved. My soul is being saved. My body shall be saved. When I see him face to face, I will be like him. And I'll have a size 34 waist. (laughs) Just trying to get your attention. My spirit is alive to Him. But my soul, if it's unrenewed, it's going to go with the desires of my body. What is it craving? I can be a brand new believer with my spirit alive to Christ. But because my soul, my mind, what I think, what I want, what I feel has not been renewed in the Word of God, it'll go with the body every time. But once, once I start to renew my mind, what I think, what I want, what I feel, my mind, my will, my emotions, and I get it lined up with my spirit the body will come in line every time because two outnumbers one any day. Are you hearing what I'm saying? This can become an understanding in your pursuit for God that will bring deliverance into your life. It'll teach you that you can't trust anything of yourself, period. Not your heart, not your mind, when they're apart from Christ. But you're not apart from Christ anymore if He's your Savior and He's dwelling in your heart by faith. This is the concluding scripture that I'm sharing. Proverbs 3. It all of a sudden comes into line when the writer of the Proverbs says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And by the way, he throws in this mind issue too because he says, And lean not on your own what? Understanding. You can't figure this out. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't trust your heart, but trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Another translation says He will make your paths straight. He will break you out of the circular motion and He will set you on a path of linear progression where you start to see some new territory that you've never ever seen before. Have you been blessed by this this morning? Bow your heads with me, please, for a word of prayer.